listening to The Rock Band with Jim Hawksworth and Frank Grabmeyer, two guys discussing all things rock and roll. Hey, Frankie, are you ready to rock? Yes, I am. Because if you're ready, I'm ready. Let's rock! Welcome, everybody, to the inaugural episode of The Rock Band. I'm Frank Robmeyer. And I'm Jim Hawksworth. And, um... You know, a lot of people ask us, um, you, you know, how we met. We met about 10 years ago. We're both from the south side of Chicago. And, um, you know, you know we, we connected through some kids' activities that our kids did. And, and uh, we found that we had this connection and this passion for music and rock and roll and have had it, you know, since we were young kids, our, our age, our kids met. And so that's, that's how Jim and I met and had this connection. Well, and beer. Oh, and beer. And beer, of course, of course well, yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember that first day when, when we met and you came to my basement, which is, uh, as you know, Party Central. and uh, The Rock Chamber. The Rock Chamber, as it's referred to. Um, but, but I remember that day you were kind of looking around at all the music paraphernalia in my basement and we were listening to some tunes and, and you said, you know what, I got a band I think that, that you've never heard of I, before. I tried to stump you. Yeah, you tried to stump me. And what, do you remember the band? I do remember Who the band. Who was it? The Tigers of Pantang. Tigers of Pantang. John Pantang. Sykes band. Yes, exactly. And I said, you said which, which album? album? <laughs> exactly. And we knew, it was Kismet. It was Kismet. We knew from then on we were going to have a, a soul brother relationship with rock and roll. So that was fantastic. And then as we explored, you know, conversations about growing up and, you know, how our music impacted our lives... Uh, we found that we also had another connection, and that was... We both had van experiences. We both had rock bands. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't own mine. Oh, okay. I right. didn't own mine. Well, was, tell the story. Okay, well, so I had a friend. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep his name out of this, but I had a friend Protect growing up... Protecting the innocent. Protecting the innocent. I had a, a friend growing up in high school. Um, I got my license quite a bit later than uh, everyone else. I, and even though I am from Chicago, I did grow up in New Jersey, and the... the um, you know, in my formative years through high school, et cetera. And the, the, the driving age there is a year later, it's 17. Um, and I had a late birthday in June. And so um, a friend of mine who had his license for quite some time, and you know, now that both my parents are, are deceased, I can tell this story. <laughs> uh, so that he used to pick me up and he came from a very, very religious family. Um, and his parents were very anti rock and roll, but he loved rock and roll and he wanted to hear more of it and he knew I had it. So um, it was an exchange. Uh, he would pick me up in his van, uh, and we would get in, and I had all my Black Sabbath and Kiss and uh, you know Motorhead and all things rock and roll, and we would just drive around, and he would let me drive the van, even though I was only 16, and I didn't have a driver's license, and thank God I never got caught. But anyway, we had some great times sharing um, you know, a lot of laughs over uh, rock and roll, and uh, you know, it was just, just great memories. And I, uh, I had a, my very first car uh, growing up, uh, you know, I, I saved up my money. I wanted to go out and buy a car. And my, my parents wanted to take me out shopping for a car. And of course, I, you know, no way. I want to go pick out what I want to pick out. So I went by myself. And later that evening, I came roaring up into the driveway of my house in a 1976 Chevy van with the 
the little bubble window oh, in yeah. the back. I had shag carpeting all on it. I had a bed in the back with uh, leopard skin sheets. And, For what? You know, every Catholic mother's <laughs> worst nightmare came roaring up into the driveway, <laughs> and her son was driving it. Uh, but I, I added, I had my big stereo speakers. I added in there. I hung them in the back. I routed them through my car stereo, and I used to drive around with my buddies. You know. Windows down, blaring it out. Blaring it out, you Absolutely. know, that's the way to do it when yep. you're 16, 17 years old. What you know? color was it? Bronze. Bronze. <laughs> a nice rich color. Yes. Bronze. <laughs> but, uh, Classic color. Absolutely. I'm trying to remember, I think the van, it was like, it, was, it wasn't an Econoline van, but it was big. I think they had four kids in this family, so it was a pretty big van. Um, and it, it felt a little bit at the time like driving what I thought was like a school bus around you know so a little bit odd blaring you know iron man with the windows down uh you know in a school bus or yeah. something like that My, mine uh you know we, we'd always there was always some some constants music was always going and the van always smelled kind of like stale beer for some reason i don't know hmm. why yeah but, i don't know you know, I don't either. Yeah. <laughs> you know i'm just sitting here thinking that if my kids hear this podcast which i'm sure they will at some point <laughs> They're gonna know that their dad was driving illegally uh, well, at the age of sixteen. Well, you know, it could be worse. They could know that their dad had a van that had a bed in the back that smelled like stale beer with leopard skin sheets. Well, you know, yeah, I still have the leopard skin sheets, by the way. What? No, I don't. Okay, yeah, I, was gonna say, <laughs> I would have seen those. I'm sure. I'm sure. All right, so we want to shift now our attention to. Um, what we're going to introduce as a, what we hope is a recurring theme on, here on the podcast, and that is what we call our magic power moments. And the reason that we, we named it the magic power moments, um, Frank and I both love Triumph, and uh, among other bands, obviously. And actually, Frank is wearing today That's for right. our, our recording here. Right. He's sporting his Triumph, uh, the, the old three-quarter length sleeve baseball shirt, right. uh, or a concert t-shirt that I got him actually for his birthday, for his 50th. That's right. Birthday, which That's was right. uh, just in October. Right. Rocktober. Rocktober, excuse me, of 2018. So um, so thanks for wearing it. It looks no, great, by I, the way. I think it's a Thunder 7 album. I think. I think you're right. I think you're right. Beautiful, uh, the, the, the classic uh, Triumph logo there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the magic power moment, uh, you got to tell your, your story about how we, we, we got to yucking up about the, the magic power with the song and In Me it, and, well, yeah, and all that I, stuff. I've said for years that... I, I think the emphasis on the is on the wrong words in that song. It should be, you know, I've got the magic power of the music in me. In you. It's got to be personalized. That's right. It's in me. So the magic power moment really is a testament to something that happened in your life uh, involving music that left, you know, an indelible impression on your soul, right? So... Today, we're going to share with you, um, mine is actually a two-part Magic Power moment, just because it was so cool. Um, but, uh, Frank, why don't you tell us a little bit about your Magic uh, Power moment? Well, you know, it was, I think I had still had the rock van at the time. I was 16 years old, and um, I, my buddy and I wanted to get tickets to Deep Purple. They had a Deep Purple concert. It was a brand new, uh, well, not brand new, but a fairly new venue I had never been to, the UIC Pavilion. Year was 1984. They had just come out with their Perfect Strangers tour. It's the first, uh, it was like their first. Um, the reunion of Mach 2, baby. Mach 2 of Deep Purple. That's right. It was, uh, they, and they had the first album they had recorded 
in I think it was 11 years or something like that. And um, so my buddy and I got up at three o'clock in the morning, went down to wait in line. Back then they actually, you know, kids won't know this, but they, you actually had to wait in line to get tickets. You didn't just go online and get tickets. So we waited in there, got in line, waited for in line for tickets, the concert tickets to go on sale at Sport Mart, which was a sporting goods retailer that had a ticket master inside there. Oh, yeah. So we waited in line. And the coolest thing, the thing that hit me and made the biggest impression was up until that point, music was about my generation. You know, it was about the, the bands that were my age that were, you know, I didn't really have a connection outside of that. I mean, I knew some of the classics and I went to see, wanted to go see Deep Purple because of the history, the band and everything. But to wait in line and hear all these old dudes who had been going to their concerts or had, they had such an impact on their lives and they were like, old they were like 50 years old <laughs> and so they had such an made such an impact on their lives and these people would come into line with boom boxes and you remember what boom oh, yeah. boxes really and they put the cassette in and they play whatever some they'd be playing stargazer or something some album and boom these guys would start telling all these old stories about, oh i saw them back in 71 and, da, 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 da. and it was just such a cool thing and an eye-opening thing that music has had an impact on these guys lives for you know, decades. Absolutely. And it opened my eyes to, you know, and I re really thought to myself, well, when I'm an old dude, 50 years old, what the hell kind of stories am I going to be telling about how music impacted me? And so it's kind of come Turns forward. out it was that. Turns out that's the story. <laughs> Turns out that was the story. So that was my magic power moment for this episode. Awesome. Awesome. Well, my, like I mentioned before, it's, it is kind of more like a two-part uh, uh, magic power moment. And, and really it's two-part because um, it's, got my first rock concert that I ever went to and um, I was 15 years old and I actually went back and I found out there were two dates that the Monsters of Rock tour came through um, East Rutherford, New Jersey at Giant Stadium. So I can't remember if I was there on June 26th or 27th of 1988, but I think it was the Saturday. So I think it was the June 26th date. Um, and the Monsters of Rock tour that year was uh, five bands, and the opener was a band called Kingdom Come. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you remember Kingdom I Come. I do. Uh, they were um, actually thought to be very similar to Led Zeppelin. Yep. Everybody kind of considered them a Led Zeppelin ripoff. And matter of fact, they were dubbed uh, Kingdom Clone by a lot of critics, um, saying that they sounded too much like Led Zeppelin. Um, they say people actually thought that when they heard their music that it was actually a Led Zeppelin reunion. I never felt that it was so similar to Led Zeppelin, but, you know, to maybe... But you could hear the similarities. You could hear the similarities, but it certainly didn't seem like a, a Led Zeppelin. But I'm going to guess Kingdom Come wasn't your magic power moment. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> uh, so the whole day was a magic power moment because okay. I was 15 years old. I can't even believe my mother let me go to this concert at that age um, without, an, without a parent. It was one of my buddy's older sisters that, that drove us there. Um, so it was Kingdom Come was the opener. And then, um, and then, of all things, it was Metallica. Metallica was the second band on the, uh, the show that day um, playing a 60-minute set. And just a month later, they would release And Justice for All. Oh, all right. So it, it was, uh, like I said, 88. Um, and so this was, you know, going to be the first album with Jason Newstead on bass um, after the death of Cliff Burton a couple years earlier. They had recorded that, um, that mini EP, that Garage Days, where right. they did some cover songs. 
but this was going to be their, their first big um, release in quite some time with a new, new bass player. And uh, so the Metallica came on. And, um, you know, to, to see Metallica at 15 years old, oh, yeah. kind of in the heyday of their career, you know, I wish I got, it, got to see him in 86, but I never did. Um, so then, so Metallica put on a hell of a show, and then the next band was Dokken. So oh. Dokken comes out, and as, as you know, Don Dokken Don was Dockin, the... George Lynch. Yeah. The, Mick he, Brown. Yep. They, Jeff so, Pilson. Oh. oh like, holy crap, how do I know how all How do you that? know all that? That's pretty damn impressive. Um, Not so, really. <laughs> so Don Dawkins was the lead singer yep. and sometimes guitarist, um, not too often. But um, so they had just they they were still kind of riding high on their hit "In My Dreams," which in was my dreams. yeah exactly, and it was a song that had come out in 1985. So it's three years later. They really hadn't done a whole heck of a lot. And you know, I was trying to remember. And maybe do you know um, when I was when I was thinking about this the other day was. Dawkins in my dreams was that part of the Nightmare on Elm Street? Was that one of the Nightmare on Elm know. Street theme songs? I feel like it was, but I, I don't know. It could I, be. I, I could be wrong on that. Um, anyway, the, then we had co-headliners of that show. Okay, uh, it was the Scorpions and Van Halen. Oh, I do remember that. So, were you at that tour, by the way? Did you, you go know, see I, that? Tour? I think, no, I I don't think so. But I did see one of those stadium tours with. Van Halen is the World Series of Rock or something like that. Well, this was the OU812 okay. tour. Um, you know, so they were, had Sammy Hagar. Had Sammy Hagar. It was the second album of the Sammy Hagar era. Um, Van Hagar, yeah, as, Van they were, Hagar. as they were kind of known at the time. Um, they were riding pretty high coming off that, that you know, monstrous release, that 5150 album that Van Halen had done um, a year or two earlier. And they... Um, this this was quite another hit for them, the OU812 album. Um, I think it made it. I don't know if it made it to number one. I know that I know I know at least. Yeah, I think it did go to number one. Um, so anyway, they they were really the headliner because they were the last ones to go on. Scorpions were on for like a seventy five minute show uh, before that. So um, and and that was the Savage Amusement tour. So they had just released that. Not my favorite Scorpions album, um, probably not even close to my favorite <clears throat> Scorpions album, but um, the big hit off that album was Rhythm of Love, which, oh, you know, yeah. again, not, not, my favorite, not my favorite Scorpions song, uh, but they were still riding pretty high um, from their monster release, which is Love at First Sting, right. um, a couple years earlier, and that had all the big hits, Rocky Like a Hurricane, still, Rocky, you <laughs> exactly. Still loving you. Uh, big city nights. Uh, that was just a, a big, big album for them, and yeah. really helped break them in the in the U.S. So that's a great magic power moment for me. It was a it was a great day. But the I think the even bigger magic power moment that happened for me that day was I still remember it was in between the first set. So it was in between Kingdom Come and Metallica coming on, <clears throat> and you know as 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 anyone knows in between sets you, they would often pipe in rock music uh, to help kind of pass the time and so on comes this song and i don't know this song and i look to the guy next to me he's a big dude standing there no shirt on it was a hot summer day he's got the long hair the mullet and everything and he's singing along with this song that i thought was really cool and i had never heard before and i said to him what is that what is this song and he said man that's Black Sabbath. And I said, yeah, what, what's the song? He said, 
The Wizard. It's one of the great songs that Black Sabbath ever did. And I'm like, yeah, I love it, right? So, um, so I made it my mission to go get that. I had to have that song. And so, oddly enough, I went to Germany that summer, later that summer, uh, about a month later, for a three-week exchange program. And while I was in Germany, I was in a record store, and I'm leafing through the CDs, and I come across Black Sabbath's first album, and I flip it around, and I see that The Wizard is on there. And um, I bought it, and I've had it ever since, and it's, it was just one of those life-changing moments for me, because um, anyone who knows me, or, or as you might get to know me, I'm a huge Black Sabbath fan, one of my favorite bands Absolutely. of all time. So, uh, just a, a great, great day. Was the release in English, or was it... Uh, it was actually not an English release. Well, it was a German release, and right. it actually had um, it had some different material on it. Okay. Um, it didn't have Wicked World, which is on the the first Black Sabbath album in the you know like a, a typical UK or US release. It had um, this this song, this cover song called "Evil Woman." Um, that that was on there instead. So I didn't even realize until many many years later that. Wicked World should have been on there, and it wasn't. So I, I felt robbed of a of a song for for a number of years. So, um, so that's our magic power moments for for this episode, and uh, really cool stuff. Really cool stuff. Welcome back. We've now arrived at the segment of our podcast that we titled Unearthed. It's a look at the history of certain aspects of rock and roll music, instruments, and other parts of the, the music scene. We take a look back and we unearth a piece of rock and roll history. Yeah, today we're going to be talking about the uh, sound of the 70s, which uh, if, if anybody is a fan of classic rock, there really is a sound that is ubiquitous with 70s rock and roll, and that, of course, is the sound of the famous Hammond organ and the accompanying... Leslie Speaker. The Leslie Speaker, right. So um, we thought we would go back and just kind of give the listeners a, a, a kind of a piece of history of the, the Hammond organ. Um, the Hammond organ, actually, of all things, is from Chicago. Uh, so the inventor, this guy named Lawrence Hammond... He was uh, born in 1895, lived to July 1st of 1973. So we actually only overlapped on the earth for 10 days because I was born on June 21st wow. of 1973. So uh, just a little short overlap there of, of our lives. But um, anyway, he's best known, obviously, for his namesake, Oregon. And this guy, Lawrence Hammond, he was quite, quite a guy. Um, he was one of the most prolific inventor, inventors, I would say, of the early 20th century. 1922, he invented the first 3D glasses to watch movies. So he was the inventor of that. Um, he was the engineer of boat engines. He ran the Hammond Clock Company, which produced silent spring-loaded clocks, which is basically, fundamentally, the first electric clocks. Um, probably one of his bigger inventions in the in the twenties, you could imagine bridge the game the card game bridge was was extremely popular, so he invented an electric bridge table that automatically shuffled um, and dealt cards for for bridge games he, uh, by the time he died in seventy three he had over a hundred patents to his name and had had invented quite a, a number of things 
Um, interestingly enough, this guy Lawrence Hammond was not even a musically inclined person. He, he had very little interest in music. Hmm. Uh, but he was always interested in finding the next gimmick to kind of keep his fledgling um, inventions afloat. So uh, what he did is in 1933, he bought a, a, a used piano and he pulled it apart. And the reason that he did this, he, he got to be interested in sounds. And it was really mostly because he noticed that the, the motors that ran his electric clocks that he had invented could generate various musical tones. So um, he pulled apart this, this piano and he, he kind of like created um, what would become really the, this, this new, unique, it's a full-on organ with a new, unique sound. Um, and so the thing that made the Hammond organ so unique was um, not only its sound, it, it, was, it was meant to sound very much like a church organ. And um, so most of its early sales were, were going to churches as a substitute for pipe organs. Pipe organs were extremely expensive. They cost at the time about $75,000, and you could buy a Hammond organ for $2,600. So churches were very quickly um, moving to the Hammond organ as a substitute. And so um, obviously the, the makers of the, the, the church organs didn't like this at all, and they, they tried to stop the production of the Hammond organ because it was, it was pushing the church organ uh, manufacturers out of business. And so um, the, what they did is they, they, they tried to say that they couldn't sell the Hammond organ as an organ because they said it wasn't an organ. And so what they decided to do is in 1937, they set up this blind test to compare the sounds of a church pipe organ and the Hammond organ. Hmm. And so they had a team of experts that were called in to listen to various um, you know, pieces of music being played on either instrument in a blind test. And a third of the time, people guessed wrong on the Hammond organ. They said that it was a church organ. So even the most tried experts of uh, understanding and, and interpreting music were getting it wrong about a third of the time. And so, the, uh, you know, it was ruled that the Hammond could be called an organ because um, it because it because it sounded so much like a church organ so really kind of fascinating piece of history here hmm. um the the organ had two features about it that really made it unique and one of which is these tone wheels so these were like spinning discs inside the organ um, and the other one were these draw bars that that you could slide in and out on the excuse me on the organ that would create unique sounds um so you know when you could you could push a single note on the Hammond organ and by manipulating these draw bars, it would give it almost a, a, a chord sound to a, a single note. So that was a very new thing at the time. And so a lot of musicians start, start experimenting with the Hammond organ, um, trying to get these new rich sounds out of it. And so what we find is that it was starting to be taken up a lot by churches, as we mentioned. Now it's being incorporated into sporting events, theaters are picking it up, broadcasting shows, um, this was this was the new market for for the Hammond organ, um, and all this while it's it's replacing these traditional pipe organs that uh, you know they had relied on for so many years. Um, it would go into radio soap operas in the background. Uh, you know, you okay. think of these old old um, you know nineteen fifties soap operas on the radio and the, the the organ music that would play. 
Um, so various musicians started incorporating the Hammond into their, their own musical recordings. And, you know, it really started probably in the jazz era where you start to hear bands, you know, like Count Basie um, introducing the Hammond organ into their music. Um, 1949, they start creating organs designed to be played at home. So they realized very quickly, instead of this just being a commercial endeavor, boy, we could sell a scaled-down version, a lighter version, that people can bring into the home. Well, that changes everything. Right? To the masses. To, the masses. to the masses. So, um, so they start that in 1949. By the, 19, the early 1960s, pretty much everybody was playing a Hammond organ. It was extremely popular. Gospel music was using it. Jazz was using it. Blues polka and a burgeoning rock scene right so right absolutely you got to imagine that you know by the time it's that that now we're in this like early to mid 60s period um you know the the young kids who had grown up learning kind of classical style piano are starting to tool around now and fiddle around with this this new organ that can create all these really unique sounds so you know, the teenagers uh, now are becoming these these burgeoning musicians, and these kids weren't rock organists. They, they had learned either by learning jazz or soul or blues, and they were fundamentally classically trained pianists, which is why the music of the 70s, by the time the, the, the late 60s and early 70s hit, these, these folks um, are, are almost virtuosos on the Hammond organ. Um, and so the sound continues to evolve in the, uh, you know, as we know about music, it continues to evolve and get harder and heavier and people are taking it in new directions. And that's really what happened with the Hammond organ. Um, the, the, with the introduction of the heavier guitar, we also see the organ get heavier, right? And so you start to, to think of, um, musical connections and, and, you know, Bands like Deep Purple come to mind, right? Where you've got a hard, heavy, Richie Blackmore on guitar and John Lord, oh, Lord. playing the, the Hammond organ. Um, but, of course, we know that no Hammond organ was complete without its real sister component, which was, of course... The Leslie Speaker. The Leslie, the Leslie speaker. Rotary Speaker. Exactly, exactly. So, the Leslie Speaker, um, it was said, uh, you know, once famously, and I'm not sure who said it, but... They said, a Hammond organ without a Leslie is like a ship without a sail. Um, you know, back in, the, back in the 70s, 60s and 70s, um, there was a, a competing brand uh, formed by this guy, Don Leslie, in 1940, where he made a speaker that went around in circles inside of this, this cabinet. And I think the easiest way to understand what produces a sound is, if you think about a siren on a cop car. Right, exactly. And as, a, as the cop car goes, goes flying by, you know, right, the tone changes as it, as it gets further away. And so what, what Don Leslie did is he said, well, what if we kind of took that and sped it up and made it go in a circular motion, right? So imagine inside of the speaker, you have two almost horn-shaped, um, you know, conical, speakers and they spun around really really quickly well what would happen it would whoa, 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 it would create this almost a, a vibrato of a sound right and so that um that became really interesting and unique to a lot of the the um musicians in in the 60s and 70s and 
really what they found was if you took a Hammond uh, organ and you attached a Leslie speaker to it, it was about the pinnacle of the organ sound. Right. It would, it's like the marriage of Edith and Archie Bunker, the, you know, Fred and Wilma. Exactly. Al Bundy and Peggy Bundy. Yeah, so um, it, it really did usher in this new thing. And, and I think what a lot of people don't realize, I mean, the, those two names are, are just so synonymous, the, the Leslie Speaker and the Hammond organ. But in fact, these two were, were in real life, they were foes. They hated each other. They wouldn't work together. Matter of fact, they tried everything. Um, you know, Don Leslie wanted desperately to have his speakers incorporated into the Hammond organ. But that, that was not what Lawrence Hammond wanted at all. Right. As a matter of fact, I believe he even, Hammond even invented certain um, um, couplers or things into his Hammond uh, organs that would not allow them to be used with rotary speakers or Leslie speakers. You know, he, he was that opposed to that technology. Yeah. So um, the, the, the Hammond company, oddly enough, went eventually went bankrupt um it, it lost its steam and a lot of people think it was because of the fact that they you know would never give in so i mean the, the this was a the, a case in history where you had two products where they kind of washed each other's backs a little bit uh you know the leslie speaker would not have been around but for the hammond organ and the hammond organ would not have reached its height of popularity um, if it wasn't for the Leslie speaker being being added on to it, so if you think about you know what how how the Hammond evolved, I mean I think it's pretty well known that the kind of the the father of the Hammond organ in the rock world was a guy named Jimmy Smith, and Jimmy Smith um, was a jazz organist. And he linked jazz to soul, and he realized that um, the, the Hammond organ could replicate the sound of a swing bass. And so he started using the Hammond organ as a substitute for uh, kind of the traditional stand-up bass in, in the jazz world. And then um, if you, you kind of think about the, the chronology of how this all went, um, Booker T. Jones then took that sound and converted it to the rhythm and blues, the R&B era. And so from there, you know, we kind of jump into all of the iconic organists of the 70s classic rock scene. And, you know, Jimmy Smith has been cited many times by, um, you know, John Lord of Deep Purple as, as a huge influence on him. Um, and so, you know, these, these, these players start to realize very early on that the organ now is just as popular as the guitar. And it's, it's the driving force behind a lot of that music of the late 70s, or excuse me, late 60s and early 70s. And, um, and so you start to see the organists become a very popular part of these bands where they're starting to bring the Jerry Lee Lewis showmanship to I think what a lot of people would consider like a nerdy instrument, you know, just a, a few years earlier, and um, you know they they start to to play their their Hammond organs and their Leslie speakers and further amplifying them through the Marshall stack and the Marshall speakers, right, to give it um, you know 
John Lord wanted to match Richie Blackmore's edginess on the guitar, so they're they're always trying to find ways to to amp it up a little right. bit. Right, and distorted it, you know. Distorted in some cases, it. it distorted it too, so it gave it a real cool sound, absolutely. different sound, absolutely harder edge sound. Yep, you know? and so it was folks like I mean, we can go down the list. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, pretty much every '70s classic rock band was incorporating, except Black Sabbath probably, <laughs> uh, was incorporating some form of, of the Hammond organ, whether it be the, the classic B3 model, the C3 model. The C3 was used more by John Lord than a lot of the others. But um, you, know, you can go down the list. Steve Winwood was a, was a classic user of uh, in traffic, and Greg Raleigh of Journey, and Tony Banks of Genesis and John Paul Jones of Zeppelin and Robert Lamb of Chicago, uh, you know, go down like Keith Walsh or, or Steve Walsh, excuse right me, of, of of Kansas and Rick Wakeman of Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, all these bands were were using the Hammond organ, and really no uh, no collection of of seventies rock is complete without without any of these artists. So. Very true. And the Leslie Speaker, it's interesting enough, you know, it, while it has the connection to the Hammond, it was used uh, in other areas too because of that, like you said, that modulating sound. So, you know, back in uh, you know, 1965, Buddy Guy was playing guitar on Junior Wells's album, uh, Hoodoo Man Blues, and blew his speaker out during the recording process. So the, um, the engineer at the time said, let's run let's run the guitar through the Leslie speaker and let's see what happens. And it kind of electrified that sound of running a guitar through a Leslie, uh, basically an, a, a speaker designed for an organ running a guitar through. I mean, and, and that really changed things. And then, you know, the Beatles, John Lennon ran his vocals through it and George ran his guitar through it. And Joe Walsh in the 70s during the James Dang, he almost ran his guitar exclusively through a Leslie, or at least a rotating speaker, because he liked the sound. Sure. And then, I mean, all the way up to a somewhat modern day, I mean, Chris Cornell wrote Black Hole Sun through a Leslie. I mean, and yeah, that gives a really yeah. interesting effect to that, a whole different generation of music. Yeah, now that I think about it, I, th I think it's Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is the, the famous yep. Beatles song that John ran his vocals through. Uh, through the Le through the Leslie speaker to get that kind of vibrato sound in his in his voice, right. and I think there were certainly others. Um, you know, I mentioned Keith Emerson earlier uh, from obviously Emerson Lake and Palmer, and I think I was always kind of under the impression that he used the the Hammond almost exclusively, and um, that's it's really not quite the case. While he did use the the Hammond organ. He really was more known as the pioneer of the Moog synthesizer. So completely different sound and, and a lot of different variations. You can come up with a lot of different uh, ways to, to, to use this, the various sounds of the Moog synthesizer. Um, but certainly a, a showman uh, in his own right, as we know, is oh, yeah. taking a knife to his organs and stabbing <laughs> them and flipping them over on stage and kind of uh, smashing his instruments a la... Uh, Jimi Hendrix or The Who or something like that. Uh, so very much a, a showman in his own right. Now, the segment is called Unearthed. And so that means that it was, you know, these things have been buried for a while. I mean, and honestly, it really has kind of disappeared. I mean, you've, the, the Hammond and the Leslie, that, I mean, that, 
Now, granted, there's effects pedals and things today that, that have taken the place of that, but I mean, that, that really has kind of gone away, and a lot of people may not know the history and everything about this because, you know, it really has kind of disappeared in music. Yeah, except if you're in Bluestown, USA, which is obviously Memphis. Memphis. And Frank and I went took a trip to Memphis uh, recently to do a, a, a blues, blues tour. Blues trail. Blues trail tour. And obviously, you can't go to um, Tennessee without going to Memphis. And and you can't go to Memphis without going to B.B. King's. We went to B.B. King's, and uh, it was a great house band playing at B.B. King's that night. And uh, we, we had the opportunity to hear um, a, a great organist on, on the stage that night with a, a very good blues band. And of course, what was attached to that, that Hammond organ up there, but... A Leslie. The Leslie, the Leslie, right? And so... Um, we, 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 had a, we had a nice laugh because I walked up to the guy and I pointed to the, the speaker cabinet as he was playing and I gave, you know, the international Leslie sign, which we all know is if you raise your two middle or your, <laughs> right. your index fingers and you spin, spin them around, them around. <laughs> you spin them around, they know exactly what you're talking about. And he assured me that... Uh, uh, in Australia, you have to spin them in the opposite direction. You spin them direction. in the opposite directions in Australia, <laughs> exactly. But uh, no, he did confirm. So it was really cool to see, you know, this, this real great piece of rock and roll history right. being embraced being by, embraced still by, today by these guys and really it goes back to the roots right i mean if you, you you think about jazz there's so many there's so many excuse me you think about blues there's so many offshoots to other genres like jazz and soul and r&b and whatever it might be so um the the, the blues music really does incorporate everything and the hammond organ just kind of ties it all together yeah so let me ask you a question let's wrap this segment up if you had to pick a song to be played right now on our podcast that features Hammond organ and a Leslie rotating speaker, what would that be? Well, I think the, the classic one that everybody would recognize immediately is the introductory organ piece on A Whiter Shade of Pale by Procol Harum. I mean, that, that, that kind of is the classical sound of the Hammond organ there with the Leslie speaker. And I think that that's a great way to, if you want to check out what that sounds like, I think we're going to play a clip of it now, but uh, you'll, you'll get a feel for it without any other instruments um, at the very beginning of the song and, and get a real feel for the richness of the, uh, of, and texture of that sound. Well, here it is. Hope you enjoy it. I hope you have been un enjoyed unearthing the Hammond and the Leslie speaker. To the inaugural episode of The Rock Van. Hope you enjoyed that uh, clip of the song Whiter Shade of Pale by Procol Harum. If you did, Jim and I encourage you to go check it out on whether, whatever streaming service or record store you go to or wherever you get your music. Also, check out all of the great artists that we mentioned in our last segment about the Hammond organ and the Leslie speaker. That brings us to our final segment of the day, which is 
R.I.P. Rock in Peace. This is a segment that we feature artists that have passed on and left this plane and left, left the, an amazing catalog of music behind, but never really got the recognition in life um, that they, they should have. So we like to feature them, even though they're gone today, and hopefully inspire all of you to their great music and the great catalog of uh, creativity that they left behind. Yeah, this is a, you know, obviously a very poignant part of the podcast. Uh, there's so many of our uh, heroes that are dying, especially over the last five years or so. And uh, it, it reminds me of this uh, thing that happened recently. So Frank, Frank's daughter's, uh, daughter and my daughters are, are gymnasts, and, um, and, and so is my son. And oddly enough, um, one of the people here in, sh in the Chicagoland area that is very active and, and visible in the gymnastics scene is the drummer from the Smashing Pumpkins, and it's his son that is a gymnast. And so I see Jimmy Chamberlain oh, yeah. of the Smashing Pumpkins all the time at gymnastics meets. And for whatever reason, for the longest time, I never put two and two together. I was never like a huge Smashing Pumpkins fan. I, I appreciate their music, but... Certainly my, my roommate in college was a huge uh, Smashing Pumpkins fan and was a drummer. He was, um, I, I would say, even kind of a probably semi-professional drummer, very, very talented guy. And um, so recently it kinda, I kind of put two and two together and I took a picture of Jimmy Chamberlain at uh, one of the gymnastics meets and I said, hey, I'm just hanging out here with my buddy and he's like, what the hell? You know, how do you, how do you know him and this and that? And so I kind of explained to him that I see him all the time at these gymnastics meets. And so, um, he goes, he sent me back a text. He said, could you make him watch this? And it was a, a YouTube video of my college roommate playing geek USA by smashing pumpkins. Right. So we kind of joked about how funny would it be if I got him to watch it and this and that. So we were leaving a meet a couple weeks ago and I see Jimmy Chamberlain in the foyer of the of the the meat place and it was raining so we were all kind of waiting for the rain to die down and I'm just standing there and I said you know what what the hell I'm just gonna go for go it. for just it. go for it right so I walk over to him and I'm like hey I said I hate to bother you but I said, you got to check this out this is my this is my buddy from college my roommate you know and I played him the a little bit of the clip of the YouTube video of of you know you know how these guys set up the cameras behind them when right. they play the drums and they play along with the music so Anyway, I got Jimmy Chamberlain to agree to, to just do a quick video clip. My daughter videoed um, him saying, you know, hey, great job. I saw your video of Geek USA and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I sent it to him. sent it to my, my roommate, who I haven't seen in many, many years. Um, and he was just ecstatic. He was, he was filled with, like, such joy. And he was like, my, my life is complete now. That's, that's one of my, my drum heroes, right? So The bucket list. Yeah, it, yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was sending it to all his, his buddies, his bandmates. He still plays, I guess, in a band uh, out in the L.A. area. So um, he texts me back at one point, and he says, you just let me know who you want to meet because, you know, I'm in L.A., and there's all sorts of celebrities walking around, to which I unfortunately had to reply, all my heroes are dead. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of where we are in life right now. But it's, you know, that's kind of the, the purpose of doing this today is to, uh, and, and throughout this podcast, are, are to, to expose some of these heroes that we've had 
to generations and, and other people that may may not have. And, and, and our artist today has a connection, a, a strong connection to the Hammond and the Leslie Speaker that we just profiled in our last segment. Um, and unfortunately, he's passed on, but he's synonymous with, with his organ playing and his songwriting ability. And that is Vincent Crane from uh, Crazy World of Arthur Brown and Atomic Rooster. Yeah, and for uh, you know those of the casual fans out there, I'm sure you've heard of, um, you're probably saying, who the hell is the, the Crazy World of Arthur Brown? And I can almost guarantee you, you've heard the song called Fire by them. Uh, which we're going to actually, I think we're going to play a clip yeah, of are. here at, at a certain point. Uh, but the, the crazy world of Arthur Brown had a couple of very, very talented individuals in the band. Um, it had, uh, obviously, Arthur Brown, who was the singer, and he was quite the uh, flamboyant and theatrical artist, shall we say. Uh, he, he almost brought an operatic uh, feel to to his music. Uh, he was a, a bit of an eccentric, I, I think would be an understatement. Um, he was known to, like during the singing of of that song "Fire" on stage, he would he would put this uh, metal kind of helmet on and fill it with lighter fluid and set it on fire, and I think ultimately wound up burning his head a few times, you know. But did it for the love of his craft and right. and everything like that. Um, but but Arthur Brown was was a pioneer really of of the shock rock era and kind of a precursor to people like Alice Cooper and, and things of that era, uh, era and ilk. Um, and, and he was, you know, I would say definitely a pioneer in the, in the, 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 the up-and-coming prog scene, uh, as well as you, could, you can also feel definite roots to, to some of the heavy metal stuff that would, that would be coming down the, the pike a few years later. So, um, so the, the song Fire by, by the Crazy World of Arthur Brown was a huge hit. And you don't hear it much on the radio anymore these days, but it did reach number one in the UK. and It was a number two hit in the US. So right now we're just going to give the, the fans here a, a taste of this song Fire by the crazy world of Arthur Brown. I am the god of hellfire and I bring you fire. So that was Fire, a uh, song that was written by Vincent Crane and sung and performed by the Crazy World of Arthur Brown Band. Uh, Vincent Crane went on to form a band called Atomic Rooster after his stint with uh, Arthur Brown. And the Atomic Rooster was kind of around in the early 70s. In fact, uh, one of the original founding members of Atomic Rooster, along with Vincent Crane, was Carl Palmer, obviously the, the P in... Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. The ELP, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. So um, obviously good stead there. Um, Vincent Crane was born Vincent Rodney Cheeseman uh, in England in uh, 1943, May 21st, and died, uh, unfortunately, February 14th, 
1989. Is that Valentine's Day? Yes, it is. I think it's Valentine's Day, yeah. Um, Vincent Crane was, was quite the uh, accomplished uh, musician. He was a self-taught piano virtuoso uh, organist and was the one constant member of Atomic Rooster. And Atomic Rooster was a band that, um, you know, almost comically or famously uh, would, would change lineups uh, more often than Spinal Tap changed uh, drummers. So Stumpy Peeps! Stump, stumpy Peeps! Stumpy Peeps, great, great drama. Great drama. Um, so anyway, Vincent Crane was really good, uh, extremely talented, but he was a, a highly troubled individual, uh, in, as so many uh, really good artists, unfortunately, are. He was uh, known to suffer from bipolar disease. He had various mental breakdowns, uh, including as early as 1968, he was having mental breakdowns, was in and out of mental health treatment facilities throughout his life. Um, and, and unfortunately, he, he wound up, I, I believe it was suicide, taking his own life um, at the age of 45 from an overdose of uh, anodin, which is a, a painkiller that's popularly or was popularly sold in the, uh, in the UK. But uh, he leaves behind quite a um, extensive catalog of really good music. And uh, if you haven't or, or are not familiar with Atomic Rooster, um, you should check it out. It, it really is some great early 70s um, hard rock. They, they did go through several iterations, as I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, some of which are a little bit more of my personal preference and liking than others. Um, they, they went away in the late 70s, tried to resurrect the thing in the 80s, had, you know, very limited success uh, in the 80s. And then, you know, I think in my mind, I always felt like Vincent Crane um, never really adapted to where music was going in, in the 80s. And, and I think ultimately became very depressed that um, what he felt very passionately about and the, the music that he had tried so hard to create and inspire really had, had gone by the wayside and, and probably was, at, by that time, looked at as, as almost uh, comical, uh, unfortunately, in, in the era of um, hair bands and you know, what was probably soon to be on the horizon, the, um, you know, the grunge movement and things like right. that. So music kind of left him behind and I, I just don't think he ever recovered from that. So, um, we, you know, I, in my opinion, we lost a great, a great musician in Vincent Crane. So today a Hammond organ, um, tribute, uh, we, we bring up Vincent Crane and, uh, rock in peace, brother. Rock in peace, Vincent Crane. I hope you've enjoyed the inaugural episode of the rock van. And if you have any comments or suggestions or questions, uh, you can always email us at rockvanjam at yahoo.com. That's rockvanjam at yahoo.com. We're going to end this episode of The Rock Van with a tribute to Vincent Crane and take a listen to his virtuoso on the Hammond organ and the Leslie speaker. We're going to take a listen to Gershatzer by Atomic Rooster. I hope you enjoyed the show. Rock on. Mm -hmm.